I think there are two experiences common to all of us. One is lament, and the other is praise. Lament are those dark moments where we sit in grief, where we have deep questions about our own suffering or the suffering of others or the injustice in our world, when it looks like the wicked are prospering, when unthinkable things happen, when it looks like and feels like there's truly no hope. And in those moments of praise, those moments of prayers and songs where we enjoy for who God is and what God has done and what God is promising to do. God truly rescues us. Uh, God is truly present in the midst of our lament. Yet we have a tendency to sort of on, choose one or the other. We sort of, on the one hand, we, we're going to worship God over here or we're going to lament and experience a real hard world full of pain over here. And yet it's the book of Psalms that actually bring both of those experiences together. So today we're looking at the book of Psalms and we're going to see how lament and praise are brought together in this beautiful, poetic, uh, very creative book. Well, we'll start with a narrative summary and as we do, I will give a little bit of trivia. If you were asked, what's the longest book in the Bible? Uh, you'd probably answer the book of Psalms. Well, if you're referring to the number of chapters, you're correct. Uh, it has 150 chapters in it. Yet, if you're referring to the number of words, it's not the longest book in the Bible. That'd be the book of Jeremiah. And coming in second place would be the book of Genesis. Coming in third place is the book of Psalms. I spent uh, some time this week reading the book of Psalms. It was a reread for me. I've read it over the years several times, and I read it again this week, and it took approximately four and a half hours to read it. And as I read it and thought through it and prayed through it and even used lots of other commentaries and biblical scholars in my time of study and uh, time of preparation for this sermon... Uh, I, I just want to let you know that I'm not going to say things any better, nowhere near as clearly or as best as the Psalms say it. Well, there's a few quotes I'll give regarding the Psalm, and the first one is from Martin Luther, writing about the Psalms in the 16th century. He's a 16th century reformer, and he writes, The Psalter is the book of all saints, and everyone in whatever situation he may be, find in that situation psalms and words that fit his case, that suit him as if they were put there just for his sake, so that he could not put it better himself, or find or wish for anything better. From Bono, lead singer of U2, says, What's so powerful about the psalms are, as well as their being gospel and songs of praise, they're also the blues. Eugene Peterson, uh, in his book, Answering God, subtitle is called The Psalms as Tools for Prayer, says the human is the tool-making creature. 
The human is also the creature that prays. Therefore, psalms are tools for prayer. And then the last one I'll quote, and by the way, there's so many um, wonderful quotes regarding the psalms, but it's from John Calvin, 16th century French Christian theologian, says the psalms are the design of the Holy Spirit to deliver to the church a common form of prayer. Yeah, the psalms are this collection of 150 Hebrew poems, songs, prayers, uh, offering access to God through not only our, our deep thinking and our reflection and our meditation, but uh, regarding our feelings and our actions and our remembrance and our belief. A time period here of the Psalms, this is incredible when you think about this, but the, the time period of the Psalms is, is that they are being written over a period of a thousand years. Yeah, this, the Psalms is not David, King David, uh, just going in a cave somewhere and, and, and you know spending a month or two in solitude and, and writing the Psalms. That's, that's not what, what's happening here. The, the Psalms is a collection uh, of a millennium of praise history written throughout the uh, entire history, Israel's history, throughout the entire history of the Old Testament, starting from the time of Moses all the way to the exile. So you see they're different authors, plural. It's not just David. David contributes, and King David contributes to roughly one half of all the Psalms. And then there's other people like Asaph and the sons of Korah, and then there are even anonymous contributors. And then there are worship leaders in the temple, Solomon is a contributor. Psalm 72 and Psalm 127 are from Solomon. And then Moses. This is incredible when you think about Moses being a contributor to the book of Psalms. It's Psalm 90, where he, Moses, the psalm writer, returns us to Israel's roots. Israel's roots. And so the prayer of Moses is asking God to be faithful to God's covenant and God's promise, and to show his people mercy. The design of the Psalms, as Walter Brueggemann, who's an Old Testament scholar, says, there are three different categories. He, he describes the Psalms as broken into three different categories. One is orientation, number two is disorientation, and number three is reorientation. And he says that the Psalms, all 150 of them, fit into one of those categories. And so orientation, he means uh, simply, you know, these psalms appear to be very simplistic. If you obey God, things will go well. You will be blessed. Uh, yet we know life is more complex than that. An example of that is Psalm 1. The second type is the disorientation type psalm. These are psalms of lament. These are, these are psalms where the, the, the psalmist is saying, wake up, God. Are you even here? Do you care? And uh, an example of that is Psalm 22. Psalm 22, where Jesus on the cross, as Jesus is dying, uh, Jesus himself is, is quoting from Psalm 22, saying, my God, my God, why have you 
forsaken me. Another example of this disorientation type psalm is Psalm 69. that says, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. Come near and rescue me. And the last type of psalm is the reorientation psalm. That God puts us back together again. God pulls us through that dark moment. God begins to rescue us. An example of this is Psalm 23. It says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I won't be afraid because you are with me. You're my shepherd. Psalm 73 is another example where he says, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Then he ends that psalm by saying, but whom have I in heaven but you, O Lord? And earth has nothing I desire but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So I invite you um, to, as as you're going through the book of Psalms at different portions of your day and uh, different times of the year that you're reading through the Psalms, think about those three different types of Psalms, orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. Now, what about these books one through five within the book of Psalms? If you notice that as you've been reading, uh, biblical translators have put in there uh, book one, like it's section one, book two, book three, book four, and book five. And basically, this is dividing up the entire book into five different sections. And there's a final poem in each of these sections that say something very similar. And I found this quite interesting. And it says, May the Lord God of Israel be blessed forever. Amen and amen. So that's this repetitive phrase throughout the book here. Now, to see how the book of Psalms is designed, we actually need to start at the end of the book of Psalms, Psalm 146 through Psalm 150, five poems of praise. And these five poems of praise, they begin and end with the word hallelujah. Hallelujah. It's this Hebrew command, meaning to tell a group of people to praise Yah to praise Yah, and Yah is a short for the divine name Yahweh. Uh, Psalm 3 through 145 is, is real life and faith. Things don't always go well. The older you get, the more wise you get, uh, the more you begin to understand this. So Psalm 3 through Psalm 145 is truly the, the rough and tumble of life. It's true life. Psalm 2, Psalm 2 is this poetic reflection of God's promise to King David, which he gave him in 2 Samuel chapter 7. You'll remember weeks ago we discussed that when we were looking at that book of the Bible, that one day there would be this messianic king and kingdom, and God would come to establish his kingdom over the world and to defeat evil. And all those who take refuge in this messianic king will be blessed. And that's why the book of Psalms starts with Psalm 
one, telling us and celebrating what it means to be blessed. And that's why today our sample passage is coming from Psalm 1. Psalm 1, all about blessedness, all about blessedness. Or the Hebrew word for blessedness means happiness. Now, when you think about blessedness, or when I think about blessedness or happiness, we may think about things like this. You know, I'll be happy when I finish my to-do list. (laughs) Or I'll be happy when I can finally get to my favorite latte today. Or my favorite restaurant today. Or I'll be happy when I'm in control. Or sometimes we think, I'll be happy when your political party wins. Or you may think, I'll be happy or I'll be truly blessed when I become rich and famous. That'll truly give me the happiness, the blessedness, the stability that I'm truly hungry for. Or maybe it's similar to Susan Cain, author of a book called Quiet, which reached number one on the NPR bestseller list. And she says, you know, we'll be happy when the loud extroverts learn to be quiet. Or we say things like, you know, I'll be happy when I'm treated with respect or given love. As the rapper Drake says, you'll be happy when people, or you won't be happy when people treat you like nothing because you begin to feel like nothing. So blessedness, that's what we're talking about here today in Psalm chapter one, blessedness. The Hebrew interchangeable word there is true happiness. Blessedness is this state of experiencing divine favor. So today I want to bring out three things from this Psalm 1. One is where not to find blessedness. Number two, where to find blessedness. And number three, how to keep blessedness. Well, let's read the passage. Psalm chapter 1 says, and by the way, if you have a Bible, an old school Bible, and you're wondering where the book of Psalms are located, just Literally, open up into the middle of the Bible and you'll find the book of Psalms. If you need a QR code, it's just above us here where you can follow along as we look at Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so with the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Why don't we pray right now as we get started? I invite you to quiet your heart wherever you are, tuning in, listening to this, watching this. 
quiet your heart right now. Pause what you're doing. And let's invite God to meet us here right now. Lord, don't let us be seduced, we pray, by the world. Either naively going with the crowd or becoming a hardened cynic. Let us meditate on your word to the point of delighting in your word and delighting in you. Give us stability in the midst of these circumstances. Of a global pandemic, more mass shootings and deaths this very week, more systemic racism, more war. Teach us where happiness and blessedness and prosperity and peace truly comes from. Oh, how we need that. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus, to deliver that to us. Amen. Well, where not to find blessedness. Point number one. Verse one says, blessed. You know, again, the Hebrew word for this is happiness. And we seek blessing and happiness in in all sorts of places, don't we? We were made for it. Right, you seek, I seek, all cultures, all peoples, throughout all time, we've all sought happiness. We've all sought blessedness. And that's because we were made for it. Yet, we seek it from places and from people that can't truly give it to us. And so verse 1 here tells us where blessing does not come from. Blessing does not come from walking in step with the wicked, it says. Or cozying up to mockers of God. Now the wicked and the mockers here, it's referring to those who refuse to live by God's covenant instruction, God's way, including both those who hate God and those who claim to know God but aren't truly walking in God's ways. And so views contrary to God's word don't bring blessing. They don't bring happiness. Perhaps you've pursued that. I know I have. And pursuing a direction uh, or even a season or, or, or a lifestyle in that regard brings no blessing whatsoever. Yet we're sneaky. We're sneaky. We begin to look for happiness uh, and blessing on our own, apart from God. And all sorts of areas, instead of going to God for it or looking to God's instruction, covenantal instruction for it. We say things like, I I don't need God's help at work. I mean, I'm at work after all. I've been trained to do what I do. And why would I need God here? God belongs at church. So I'll keep God separate. Remember how we started our time here together in the Psalms, as I said, that in my own personal life and in my experience listening to the lives of others and their story, we tend to separate lament, meaning the real part of life, the hard parts of life that we go through, we separate that from praise, that is worshiping God and knowing God. And the Psalms, they're trying to bring those two worlds together. We, we, we say things like, I don't, I don't need God. I, I can manage my relationships. I mean, what does God know about relationships? What does God know about sex? 
or money. And then we spend a lifetime creating our own standards for relationships, for sex and sexuality, or for business. Verse 4 tells us here that this, this, this chaff, that the wind blows away, this is those who reject, reject God's covenant instruction and that they are truly rootless. Rootless. Verse 6 that we read says, The way of the wicked leads to destruction. It's, it's this road that finally comes to vanity. Vanity. It's a life lived pursuing a type of blessedness, a type of happiness pursued apart from God that finally leads one to ultimate emptiness, loneliness, and vanity. Proverbs. Proverbs 11, verse 7 says, When the wicked dies, his hope will perish. And the expectation of wealth perishes too. What's your happiness rooted in? You you heard the tree metaphor that we read about here in Psalm 1 just now. What is your blessedness and your happiness rooted in? What's your life rooted in? I mean, we're all attached to something. Your, Your roots, my roots go somewhere. And, and, and the psalmist is not referring to your ethnicity or your ancestry. The psalmist is talking about, oh, so something so much deeper than that. Meaning none of us, none of us are self-sufficient. We will be attached. Our roots will be attached to some source. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Weight of Glory, says we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased, says C.S. Lewis. This word blessed or happy is used 26 times in the Psalms. It's beautiful. And what it tells us is that I am most blessed. I am happiest when, I'll quote, blessed are those who walk in God's ways. That's Psalm 119 and Psalm 128. Blessed are those who delight in God's covenant instruction. Psalm 1 that we're looking at right now, and it's also Psalm 112. Blessed are those who do justice. Psalm 106. Blessed are those whose strength is in the Lord. Psalm 84. Blessed are those whose trust is in the Lord. Also Psalm 84. Blessed are those who remember the poor. Psalm 41. Blessed are those who take refuge in the Lord. Psalm 34. This leads us to our second point, where to find blessedness. Where to find this blessedness. And I want you to notice here the connection between blessing and what we delight in and what we meditate on. See, what we 
delight in and what we meditate on <laughs> is truly connected to finding true and lasting blessedness. Now again, I'm going to ask you, what is it that you delight in? What, what do you delight in? What do you meditate on? What consumes your thinking throughout the course of your day? Psalm 1 says, blessed are those. Blessed are those who delight in God and meditate on God. Well, first of all, let's look at delighting. We'll look at meditating in just a moment here, but delighting, a Christian story here, the whole biblical narrative is not one of duty, but it's one of delight. That's the Christian story. It's, it's about delighting in this God. It's about loving God. That's what it means to delight in something. It means to, to find pleasure in that thing or in that person. And so delighting, as it's referred to in the Bible, it is sort of this, that, that's the secret. That's the secret to this relationship with God and actually the secret to life itself is to delight. It means to take pleasure in and to love this God and to find yourself and to root yourself in this story, not all the other competing stories. Verse two, it says delight it doesn't mean to merely comply with, but it means to love. Love what? Love God's law. Love God's covenantal instruction is what this is meaning. Delighting in the law of the Lord, it's not just talking about the Ten Commandments, meaning the law, but it means all of God's word, all of God's loving and covenantal instruction that he's given us. How is it that you and I can delight in the law of the Lord? Well, this is where we need to be reminded that, that, that only we can only do this through Jesus Christ. That's our only hope. Jesus is the only person that truly delighted in the law of God perfectly. And so Jesus isn't just an Jesus isn't just an example, but Jesus took the curse that our disobedience to the law deserves. We break the law all the time. We break God's law all the time, and we will continue to break it. And so Jesus took the curse for us. Therefore, in Christ, believing in Christ and Christ's life lived for us, and Christ's atoning death on the cross, we are in Christ knowing that God delights in us. That, that's what this delighting is all about, is you're delighting in a God who delights in you. How often do you, do you think about that? I mean, even when you're having a bad day or even when you're having a, a bad week or, or, or you may be thinking, I'm having a bad life. It's even through those times of lament and grief and suffering and loss that we delight. We delight. The second one here is by meditating, it says. Meditating. Jesus, by the way, meditated on the scriptures day and night. 
so much that they were flowing, the scriptures were not only flowing through his mind, but also through his very heart and his soul. So that when he's on the cross and he's truly going through agony and pain and suffering, taking the sins of the world upon himself, Jesus quotes scripture. That's what bleeds out of him is Psalm 22, where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, we should say here at this point that many people, whenever they hear me say the word meditate, they, think, they may think that I'm referring to some Eastern meditation, Eastern type of meditation. Uh, what's the difference? What's the difference in the different types of meditation? Well, our culture here that we live in uh, usually means emptying the mind. When it refers to the word meditation, that we should be emptying our mind of all rational thought and that we should be open to the universe. Now, the biblical idea of meditation is the exact opposite of emptying our minds and being led by the universe, as it involves the mind. Biblical meditation involves the mind, the heart, and the soul. The entire being is engaged. The mind. It means fixing your mind on a particular attribute of God. Right. As you start your day and as I start my day, or we're in, the, um, in a busy season of work right now, you and I would choose to meditate. That means we would, we would fix our mind on a particular attribute of God. God's love, God's mercy, God's justice, God's care, God's power, and then the heart. That's where we begin to speak to our own heart about the very attribute of God that we're thinking about. So see how the mind then begins to sort of push it down or massage it down to the heart and then the soul. It finally gets to the soul where God is near and you experience his presence. It moves from just thinking about a God of love to, to that going down into your heart and, and, and you begin to actually talk to yourself about this God of love. And then finally, as it reaches your soul, God is actually with you. You feel God's presence. And you respond by saying, not only does this God love me, but God, I love you. So to meditate, the, the Hebrew word here, meditate, means to whisper. It means uh, to whisper in repetition over and over again, saying the word of God to yourself and, and having a conversation with yourself and having a conversation with God over and over again. That's what Psalm 119 verse 11 is doing. The psalmist says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now, here's where the connection between meditation and delight is so powerful. It's meditation is delight-driven thinking. Let me say that again. Meditation is where you continue to think and think long enough that you begin to delight in the God that you're thinking about and experiencing. That's what meditation is. Let me compare Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 7 and 8, that says, Blessed is the person who trusts in the Lord, 
See, this sounds very similar to Psalm 1. Meditation is very close to trusting the Lord. Delighting in God and trusting in God are so closely connected. The word meditate here in Hebrew is is also the same word as to, to plot or to plan as seen in Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It says, Why do the nations plot? Why do they murmur in vain against the Lord? Now what happens when you meditate against the Lord? Vanity. And what happens when you meditate on the Lord? Prosperity, blessing, peace, success, And when you delight in this God, and when you meditate on the story of God's love and God's covenantal instruction, don't be surprised when someone that you used to hate, you begin to actually love that person. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when you begin to no longer use people to get something out of them or treat them like some sort of object. But you, but you actually begin to love them. You actually begin to see them as a real person, the same way that God sees people. And don't be surprised whenever you begin to forgive others because you really now begin to understand how much God has forgiven you. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, uses this same word, blessed or happy, Jesus' sermon on the mount there in Matthew chapter 5, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Well, we've talked about where not to find blessedness and happiness. And we've talked about where to find blessedness. And now we're going to talk about how to keep this blessedness. Verse 3 here, there's this tree illustration. This tree illustration. And you're like, really? Are you saying that all of this comes down to the Psalms is going to tell me to be like a tree, really? I mean, don't trees die? Well, don't miss the beauty here of of what, don't don't miss the beauty of this metaphor planted by the streams of water and yielding fruit. that's, That's what we should be getting from this metaphor. It's talking about a person of substance. It's talking about a person of stability. It's talking about a person of growth. It's not talking about some fleeing feeling of happiness or or feeling blessed that sort of comes and goes or you just need to go hang out with someone that seems to be happy and joyful all the time and and so you can get up close to it and and then when you aren't near that person, you, you don't feel it as much. Rather, how to keep this blessedness. Psalm 1 verse 3 tells us that proximity matters. This tree is planted close 
is planted close to the streams of water. Promise of the resilience of a tree with a source of living water that, that, that will never, ever dry up. That, that God's word gives us this resiliency, this stability, this sustainability in the midst of a painful world that we live in. And I love here that this tree metaphor does not say that, that, that you're going to be this large tree or you're so, supposed to be this super tree. Or, you, you know, go be this large Christian or you should be this super Christian person. No, no, it doesn't say that at all. See the good news of just being a tree, yeah, just, just a normal tree. That's what I am. That's what you are. That, 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 that's exactly the metaphor that's being used here. The humility of being just a just a normal tree. I, I don't have to be. I don't have to be a super Christian. I just need to let my roots grow into the source. Let, let those roots grow down deep into God. Verse three and four, there's this contrasting fruitfulness that's that's mentioned here, based on these two similes based on the agriculture in ancient Palestine, describing the effects of these two types of people. Verse 3, this, per, this blessed person who's delighting in God and meditating on God is going to be like this tree whose leaf does not wither. Think about a tree in a dry climate. Nevertheless, it's going to thrive. It's going to thrive because of its constant supply of water. The roots are tapped into that, to that source. And so when it bears fruit, it's not for itself, but it's truly for the benefit of others. Derek Kidner, in his commentary on the Psalms, mentions freedom from the crippling damage of drought. That's what you and I get to experience. That's what being a Christian is really all about. That's what this tree metaphor here in Psalm 1 is truly all about is, is freedom. Freedom from the crippling damage of drought. Pursuing a blessedness, pursuing a happiness all by yourself, absent from God, is drought. It's vanity. And yet the opposite of that here is a, a, a tree that's going to it's going to produce fruit. John, in the New Testament, chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me will bear much fruit. And Jesus is referring to, yeah, okay, so it's not that we become fruity, but the fruit of the Spirit is what he's referring to, that the very Spirit of God lives in you and is producing this fruit. Fruit of the Spirit in the book of Galatians, known as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Verse 3 also says here about this person who's planted like a tree, Whatever they do prospers. Doesn't this sound just a little naive, honestly? I mean, whatever they do is going to prosper. Especially when you read Psalm 37, 
verse 7 that says, the evil prosper in their way. Or you read Psalm 44 that says, what about the godly? We are killed and regarded as sheep being slaughtered. Let's see later Paul in the New Testament, Romans chapter 8, he's going to quote Psalm 44. And as he's quoting Psalm 44, he says that even in the midst of that suffering, even in the midst of it looking like the wicked are prospering, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So whatever they do prospers, really? Doesn't that sound a little naive? I mean, what about your business? Does that mean that your business is always going to be successful, prosperous? Does it mean that your diseases are always going to be healed? That your family is always going to be flourishing? And that you're never, ever going to be the victim of violence? Of course, the answer is no. The biblical answer is no. That's not what's being promised here. But when you run into what looks to be a contradiction in the Bible like that, that's where some people just quit. They, 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 they just quit over this. Or it's an invitation for us to say, this is God's word. This is a mystery. I, I don't understand what seems, what looks to be like a contradiction. I, I, I don't know how, but, but God, teach me. This, this is where you're humbling yourself. This, this is where you're saying, God, teach me. Show me what this means. How is this true, O oh God? So this seemingly naive and over-the-top promise toward, you know, us is really about some future work that God is going to do through Jesus, the Messiah. And so in conclusion, we have to talk about another tree. We have to talk about another tree, the, the, the biblical story when God came down to us into our broken world and into our pain and suffered through the person of Jesus, God suffered on a tree. That's the other tree we need to be thinking about, the cross, the wooden cross that Jesus, for the sake of humanity's sin and brokenness, dies, we saw fit to kill him. And God saw fit through the person of Christ to die for us and to redeem us. The good news for us is that because of that tree, because of that tree, you'll be rooted forever. You'll be rooted in a source of stability in this God forever because of what Christ has done on that tree. And that you can plant your life in the living water that Jesus provides, and you'll never go thirsty. Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Let's pray this together right now as we close. Dear Lord, we thank you for the blessing and the happiness of being loved by you. Help our roots grow deeper into you as we learn to trust you and meditate on your word and delight in you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.